Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A uh, quick note about the foundation. We've embarked on our anxiety and depression uh, project. The goal here is to go over you know, thousands of different resources, uh, peer-reviewed papers, lectures, books, seminars, et cetera, compile it all into an AI-based coach that will help people that have anxiety and depression uh, to, you know, to help guide them through it and find treatments. So to find more about that, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Samina Ahmed Harigi. Uh, she's at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and we're going to talk about her, uh, you know, her work with stress, pain, sleep, mood, and anxiety. So, Samina, thank you for coming. Thank you, Rich, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, good. Well, tell me a bit about your your background and your work. Sure. So, I'm actually trained as a health psychologist, and so broadly speaking, that just means I focus on psychological conditions that impact your physical health. And that, and I've actually done a couple of different specialty focus areas. Right now, I just happen to be in a sleep center. And so a lot of my work has to do with depression and anxiety management within the context of sleep disorders, specifically insomnia being the most prevalent. But in the past, I've worked within cancer centers, transplant units, primary care centers, and weight loss clinics, et cetera. So you, you can imagine any major illness population, I had something to do with helping patients adjust to their diagnosis, helping teaching them learn how to cope for any changes in functionality and including mood and anxiety symptoms that might arise because of the change in their day-to-day function, as well as just accepting that the diagnosis is here and unfortunately well, what, not what, what, able what, to be cured. Yeah. What, what kind of diagnoses are the most common ones that you counsel people on? So, for example, if you're being diagnosed with cancer for the first time, right, that's a difficult one to accept. That's a difficult one to adjust to. And I would say that's more of a process. It's not something that you kind of adapt to readily. 
And so a lot of my job is just to be there from the from the day of diagnosis, but also through chemo, through radiation, as well as um, after treatment, even once they've reached remission, if they're lucky enough to reach remission, I continue to stay involved because difficulties with mood and anxiety, unfortunately, may persist because they had something to give up along the way, or there was a lot that was given up along the way. And so just helping them recognize who they are outside the context of cancer becomes important post-treatment too. So what what are some of the uh, ways in which you coach people and counsel them and you know help them? Like what are their are there milestones? Is this a well laid process that the steps are understood, or what does it look like? I want to say there's a foundational groundwork of options that we have to work with. For instance, in the research, in the literature, there is examples of adjustment-related difficulties. Right when you're first diagnosed with any one of um, numerous chronic medical conditions. And so, but within that context, everyone responds to it very differently. And so it's, I have the groundwork to work with. I have the theories and I have the research supporting it. However, each patient is treated a little bit differently depending on where they're coming from, what support they have, how educated they are, how much they understand their illness, how open to it they are, and how willing they are to even talk about it with a psychologist or a complete stranger at the time. And so I I like to fine tune the research that is available to the individual that's sitting in front of me to try to give them the best course of treatment. Well, I mean, what are what are some examples, you know, like, uh, do you tend to, again, work with a lot of people that have cancer or what's like a, a very common identifiable path and what, what are some of the steps? Specifically in terms of treatment? Yeah, treatment and, uh, right, you know, what, like, you know, for people, again, that let's say uh, they have a cancer diagnosis, what what's mm-hmm. a, a common protocol that would help someone there? And then maybe what's one more condition and what's that protocol look like and how, how is it different? Okay. Um, so for instance, if I am working, so if I get called into the breast cancer clinic, then I'm meeting someone who's being diagnosed for the first time. And at that point, it's just kind of understand, helping them understand what information was just relayed to them, helping them make sure that they understand what the diagnosis means, what this entails, what the next steps would be. It's very informational. It's very educational at, at that point. And it, it's just kind of like, I, I want to test you out and see how you're doing. And then it's introducing myself, introducing the service, letting them know I'm here. Call me if you need me. Moving forward, then I get into the more detail, fine-tuning aspects of treatment in terms of, okay, so now here we are, and these are your options. How are you feeling? Where's your mood? What's your anxiety levels like? Let's focus on your more severe concerns. So for some people, it might just be, I am worried about surgery. I don't like surgery. I don't like the idea of being put under. I have a strong fear related to being put under anesthesia, and that's what I want to focus on. So despite everything else that's going on, that's the fear we're going to address. If it's someone that's more or less panicked about what's going to happen to their family, then it might be after treatment planning or after life planning um, that we're focused on, and that's just what needs to take place first. So a, a lot of it is just educational to make sure that they know what's going on and where they're at and what this means for them long-term. There's no beating around the bush. There's no sugarcoating it. I like to just kind of put the information out there. Once that information is readily available, then I want to check in with them emotionally and psychologically. How is this impacting you? How are you feeling about it? And how are you responding to it? And based on what they report, if one is specifically elevated, then that's where I want to focus. Like if they're coping very poorly, they're not coming to their appointments, they're not following up with the physicians, they're not responding to anybody, and somehow they're, they're coming in to see me, then I want to help get them back into their treatments. I want to help get them back into the system so that they're getting the proper treatments at the appropriate times. 
And if it's more depression related, that's going to be a significant barrier for them to benefit from the treatment itself. So it's going to be addressing the mood and anxiety difficulties first, so that when they start chemo, they have a better response to it. And when they go through radiation, again, they have a better outcome because their mood and anxiety are somewhat better managed. Who runs these programs though? Is it from you and this isn't normally done or is this a common staple now in in treatment in various hospitals? Like how will people run into this? I I wish it was a common staple. I want to say that psychological service or health psychology in particular is much, is more well-established in certain medical disciplines. So for instance, seeing a psychologist for bariatric surgery is almost like gold standard at this point. Seeing someone to make sure that you're capable of going through this weight loss surgery and keeping up with what's involved is significantly important and almost in most insurances mandate it, that you have to have a psychological evaluation to be cleared to go through this weight loss surgery. Transplant, more or less, they have a psychologist involved for organ transplant. Again, even if you're donating your organ instead of just receiving one, there's a psychological evaluation that's involved, right? And so that more or less is becoming very common practice. So then as we branch out, like there are cancer centers, unfortunately, that still don't have a behavioral health specialist embedded in the clinic, but they might have resources to up to refer people out, um, or they might have support groups or whatnot to send people out to. So I I feel like cancer is still kind of up and coming in that realm. Multiple sclerosis is another condition that I work specifically with. And at the Cleveland Clinic where I was, the Mellon Center is a little bit ahead of its time in terms of the interdisciplinary approach, whereas other MS clinics might just be embedded within a neurological institute and don't necessarily have that behavioral support to go along with it. So it essentially just kind of depends on the specific medical clinic we're talking about and the resources available to them in their larger um, institution. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So are there areas where this is not common practice that you want to make it common practice or like what are your particular goals? Yes, I, I think that's just the goal for health psychology as a discipline in general, is to recognize our value, our worth, and what we bring to the table, because a lot of what we do is not quantifiable. It's not something we can record on paper and show billable hours for to say, hey, this is worth it. A lot of it is just interaction. A lot of it is just conversation. A lot of it is just making sure the patient feels supported throughout the entire treatment process. And that's really hard to quantify. And that's really hard to kind of vouch to management to say, hey, this is important and we need to bring more of this along. We deal a lot with the more difficult patients, the difficult patients that give the physicians a hard time or the nursing staff a hard time. We work through a lot of the characterological personality issues that are in play. We work through a lot of neighboring environmental stressors that are at play. And so once that starts to resolve, then the patients, uh, the physicians have a better opportunity to interact with these same patients. But again, I can't help you understand how helping someone get babysitting to attend their appointments made a significant change in their treatment outcome. I mean, are you are you innovating? Are you finding new ways to support people or the ways well known? It's just a matter of 
getting people the support? Like what's the state of, you know, medical care as you see it where you were at? What's interesting is COVID had a lot to do with it. COVID had a lot to do with kind of lighting the fire under us and putting everyone on a fast track to trying to figure out alternative ways of providing care to everybody. And so I feel like the digital community, virtual visits are here and most likely here to stay. And it's forcing us to think in more innovative, more creative ways. We're taking something that's so textbook, like a six session, you know, CBT for depression treatment plan and adapting it for something that could be administered by a nurse through primary care or something that could be administered through, um, Zoom interactions, et cetera. So we've had, we've had no choice in the last one and a half to two years where we had to adapt treatments because the treatment still needed to be provided. Mental health was significantly on the rise and continues to be on the rise during these time periods. And so we had no choice but to adapt. And right now, my focus within Cleveland is reaching out to the more rural settings the ones that have a harder time getting into the major hospital systems, the ones that have a hard time with travel or even access to internet. And so providing them with an educational background that they understand and can comprehend, providing them with the motivation that they want to do this and are likely to benefit from it, and then providing them with treatment options that's easily accessible. So the larger hospital system can be so overwhelming for so many people. And so going out to the smaller clinics, makes a difference. Going out to their part of town makes a huge difference. Setting them up with the virtual visit themselves, so all they have to do is an easy click and enter, makes a huge difference. And so that's where my attention has been, is just being readily available to the larger population, not just those that can manage a a city setting, as well as looking into more digital options for treatment, such as um, mobile app and video conferencing units as well as training other allied health professionals to then be able to deliver the treatment on my behalf since I'm only one person providing the treatment at the time. Again, is it is this space more about innovation or is the space more about, uh, you know, being able to serve the communities that aren't served right now? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I want to say both, and I don't know if that's a great answer. I, I, just, I want to say it's both. I, I feel like it, as a psychologist, Psychology discipline, we're behind than much of healthcare in general. And we kind of have some catching up to do in terms of being easily accessible, readily available, and proper communication to the general masses, general population. This is not something just, you know, for the elite that can afford the treatment anymore and, and shouldn't be. And there's so many more ways that we can be making an impact in healthcare as a whole. And so I feel like we have some catching up to do, even with the technology that is already available. And then we need to look for innovations. Then we need to look for other ways of providing this treatment other than couch and chair and one hour sessions, right? Without compromising the integrity, without compromising the confidentiality and the relationship between a patient and a therapist. So what are things that are adaptable and readily made available to others without needing to meet with the therapist? And where do we draw the line? What do we need to make sure that happens in a session one-on-one? Are there particular conditions where, uh, you know, the available therapies are a lot more advanced or pervasive and ones where it's very rare or ones where it's more needed? and it's not being applied? I can't say it in terms of particular therapies. I, I, I can't say that that's the case. I think it's more about specific populations and environmental factors that play a, a larger role at this. Uh, Serena, so not everyone's in the hospital systems you deal with, but what do they call people that provide what you provide? Is there a name for it? And if someone's in the hospital in Florida or Texas or wherever, how would they even know 
after listening to this podcast, how to find someone that can help them and advise them? You know, that's a great question, Rich. The biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for emotional support. More often than not, we're the ones kind of putting our heads in the room like, hey, I'm here and the service is available. So if you need me, call me. And I want to say on an inpatient basis, we're not often used or people don't often take advantage of us unless it's being mandated um, by their treatment provider. So I want to tell everyone that typically on an inpatient unit in a hospital at any point in your hospitalization, you can always ask to meet with a psychologist. And that's all you have to ask for is a psychologist or a mental health worker and either the attendings themselves or their student trainees will be readily available to you. Um, Typically within the business hours, typically within Monday through Friday, nine to five, there tend to be some that are on call, but those are reserved because it's not necessarily a medical emergency per se. So psychologists don't tend to be available after hours, but always someone on staff in the hospital system will be available to meet with any patient that would like to speak to someone on their behalf. And same idea with outpatient services. There's always um, psychological services involved in the area. And it may not be, again, directly in your clinic. You might need to be referred out. But typically, those relationships are well established, um, especially if you're experiencing a condition that's, that's, that's very prominent with mental health difficulties as well. Well, very good. What, what do you see in the next, you know, five to 10 years coming online to help people that are going through the medical system. Uh, Is there new stuff coming or again, it's more of a fostering adoption of this stuff? Yeah, I I think at this point is it's more or less fostering adoption of this stuff. I I noticed that recently there's been a huge trend towards looking at Eastern medicine and Eastern theoretical frameworks and adapting them to Western civilization. So essentially like if you think of mindfulness practice, right, that's something that the Buddhist monks have been practicing for goodness knows how long. Um, And now we're able to take that practice, implement it to chronic pain patients, implement it to long-term depression patients, and do the research behind it to then have an evidence-based promotion of this theory and say, yes, mindfulness works and it is helpful. And here's the research to support it. So I think that's been a lot of the innovative factors in psychology is taking alternative ways of healing from other cultures, running the research on it to see where the benefit is and is there enough evidence to support this as an alternative treatment option. And then, of course, digitalizing a lot of this. So how do you check in with yourself? How do you reinforce positive thoughts with yourself? How do you help yourself counteract negative thoughts through the use of an app as opposed to writing things down on pen and paper and taking it in to see it, uh, to discuss it with your therapist? So I I think it's, it's those two routes that we're currently taking is putting out more mobile apps, making them more readily accessible, adapting the treatment so that they are self-explanatory and so you can manage it on your own, while also looking at other cultures, other disciplines, other ways of healing, and seeing how we can adapt it and have an evidence-based support behind it. All right, Samina. um, So again, for people that are within your purview, uh, where is that and how can they get help? How can they ask for help if they're in, you know, whatever health system you're in? I don't know if it's just like the Cleveland Clinic or or where you are? So I'm actually at University Hospitals, which is um, across the street from the Cleveland Clinic, ironically enough, in Cleveland, Ohio. Right now, my practice is completely digital. And so I, not completely, 75% digital. And so I service the greater Ohio area. Right now, my population is limited to people with sleep disorders. However, our hospital system does provide treatment for other chronic illnesses and help with management of those illnesses as well. And um, that's not to say the Cleveland Clinic has 
similar services where I did my fellowship and the other larger hospital networks likely do too. So we're available. We're out here. It's just getting harder and harder to get in, unfortunately, because of such a huge demand with COVID. But I would say there's been new rules being enacted that's allowing psychologists to practice across state lines. So don't be discouraged if you're not finding someone readily within your city, look up in your state. And if not within the state, you can actually look outside of the state at the moment and you'll be able to approve or uh, virtual therapy with an outside provider as long as these mandates are in place. Okay. Well, well, excellent. Well, Samina, thank you for what you do and thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great talking to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.